This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Stephen Murphy Shigematsu explores how to live with mindfulness, compassion, and responsibility. He's joined in conversation by CIIS Professor Helgi Osterholt. This event was recorded on March 15, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stephen, for being here. Thank you, Helgi. To have this conversation around transforming the world with compassion, with heartfulness. Um, Your book with the title From Mindfulness to Heartfulness, uh, I got the chance to really dive into it in the last uh, couple of weeks or so. And just to frame it, to me, it's a It's a timely book. It's a wise and sweet and very personal book uh, that you wrote. And I find it timely in the sense that at this moment of um, anxiety and confusion and the destruction in the biosphere and the polarization in the culture and all these things happening, where a lot of people feeling overwhelmed, stressed out, at a loss of direction, isolated from each other, uh, and and those uh, types of things, to have the kind of uh, message and the essential uh, ask to uh, connect in a heartful way to oneself, to each other, um, is probably a good medicine at this moment. Um, The journey from mindfulness as a sort of maybe more recently secularized and a bit commercialized Mm. uh, pathway or stress management tool that that it's become in in some way to kind of you're you're asked to reawaken that and to offer something else than that being sort of a band-aid for stress or even sometimes a normalizing of otherwise uh, unjust or unequal or uh, overwhelming situations to kind of let's look at that again and uh, fill it with heart and fill it with uh, responsibility and purpose uh, and so forth. So it was a real joy and I feel privileged uh, having a conversation about some of those topics with you you tonight. Tell us a little bit, why, why this book, why Heartfulness? Uh, why now? What's your? How how was this born uh, into the world through you from yeah, you? Sure. Yeah, the book I think is um, it comes out of a, a a really dark place, you know, and it really comes from a place of uh, I had been living in Tokyo and I wanted to I had a um, a California dream that I wanted to live in California someday and that everything would be just awesome as the people were saying back then if I could only live in California and and I had two uh, children at the time and um, they were live we were living in a downtown Tokyo small apartment and, and it was a like a dream and we couldn't have a dog and so I thought okay we'll go to California I'll have a dog and life is just going to be wonderful in the sun and um, 
and I ended up uh, working at Stanford, and there were uh, a system called the Resident Fellow, and there were a lot of uh, kids. You could see the the life up close of students, and and these were students who you know apparently had everything in life, you know, and they were feeling like they were at, uh, at the top of the world to be at this elite university and uh, so privileged, and they were just um, so unhappy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I saw so much of that really up close. I saw a, a student who murdered his father. I saw students hiding in their closets. I saw, you know, students with a whole range of um, different types of uh, disorders that really prevented them from feeling that uh, life was good. Uh, at the same time, there was also uh, my this, the year my son entered high school in Palo Alto. Uh, he was um, greeted on the first day of school by being told that his friend wasn't there because his friend had uh, killed herself the day before, uh, and that was um, the beginning of high school, you know, uh, for a 13-year-old kid, and then. In that one school year, four other kids committed suicide at the, the same place, walked, walked in front of a, a train uh, right near our house. And, um, and still, you know, you could hear, you hear the whistles blowing like mad when, when the train crosses those intersections. And he said, you know, every time I hear that, I just can't, you know, I remember, you know, you can't forget what happened. So that was that was um, my midlife, <laughs> in a sense of confronting, you know, that what I think Dante calls the dark forest of, of midlife, and feeling that you've lost the way, and the way that you thought you could get through life was suddenly uh, it didn't make sense anymore. It didn't seem to be a way that would really you could really get through life, and um, so I think it, it caused me to really look deep within myself and to look. At what is um, you know how did I live and how was I um, how was I finding meaning and purpose in life and uh, and feeling that if I I had to begin with myself I couldn't offer anything to anybody else and telling you know young people you should have a purpose in your life and you should find the you know the the, the right way to live and uh, unless I could go there myself and uh, part of it I felt cynical like oh at this age you know I should already have it all together but I didn't and just have to you know accept that and then to to start uh, or to con continue on the journey even when the, the forest felt dark and to find whatever light was there and then picking up the the little glimpses of light I found that a lot of it came from my past or it came it was remembering rather than finding something new and uh, so I, I, I have a sense like that um, I feel kind of bad for everybody here because I'm not going to say anything that you don't already know you know that and I feel like we often go to places and we see these new books and great titles you know transforming the self and society with compassion and um, and we go and we think we're going to find something new and of course there's nothing new you know <laughs> in 2018 you know it's nothing new at all, but um, you already know, right? We already know. We already have so much knowledge within us, I think, from birth, but we forget. Uh, and that's the, um, one of the ways I remembered was that my, when my grandmother taught me about, in, in Japanese, she taught me through the characters, that's, which are you know, often very beautiful symbols about what words mean. And the word um, for forget 
So this is the, the symbol for forget. It means death, or it could mean loss, but it's, it means death. And how about this part? The heart, right? So it has that sense of you've lost your heart. You've lost touch with your soul. You've lost, you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that you're a living being and that you're dying and that you've lost touch with that because you've become numb to that or you feel like the best way to get through life is just to kind of block that out and just keep going and keep going and keep going and finding another success or achievement. So again, that sense that if you're busy, 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 I'm just too busy, I'm too busy, too busy, to, to really be in touch with being alive, right? And being alive and being a living creature and being part of nature and that you're too busy to, to, do, to connect to that because you're trying to distract yourself and you so you're always got um, something that keeps you, prevents you from really connecting deeply to things. And uh, so I felt part of what my journey was, was to remember and to remember in a very basic sense of who I was, where I came from, where what uh, I had learned from different uh, people in my life, and uh, to remember that maybe most basically just that I am a, a living being, and that I'm living and, and I'm dying just like any other living beings, and that if I can be as fully present as possible, then I will have the richest life I could possibly have. This... Um centrality of the heart uh, in all of this um, one running one chapter in your book but sort of a running theme in your book is our relationship to vulnerability as a aspect of the heart and uh, maybe it struck me as, as centrally and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what vulnerability and the contacting one's own vulnerability What that, what that means for you as far as um, your own life in uh, embracing that and growing up and the, the sort of um, soft areas that could be uh, a, um, a place of hurt that yeah. often did turn into a place of hurt for being different uh, growing up biculturally and biracially as a, as a kid in, in the United States and how these things over time turned into remembering who you are and connecting to who you are in a in a profound way and uh, ultimately uh, using it as a point of connection to others and uh, to strength courage mission purpose all these types of things so uh, tell us a little bit about your journey around that yeah. and what that word means to you um, I'll tell a story my when I was um I think I was about seven years old, and I had a couple of older, there were a couple of older boys in the neighborhood. This was in Massachusetts. We'd come from Japan, and we're living in Massachusetts, and um, it was a completely, um, there were no, nobody from Asia living there. And there were uh, two older boys that I used to hang out with, and they were going to the boys' club summer camp. And so I, I really wanted to go to the boys' club summer camp with them. And so I, I asked my dad, can I go? And he said, no, you have to be eight years old to go, and you're only seven. I said, would you lie for me and <laughs> say that, I, would you say that I'm eight and uh, change my birth date? And he's, he liked the fact that I was, you know, bold. And I said, well, I'll go even though I'm only seven years old. And so he's, he changed my birth date. And so I got to go to the, the summer camp, but it wasn't what I thought at all. It was, in fact, all these really, you know, everybody was bigger than me. Everybody was stronger than me, it seemed, and tougher. And um, and the kids started to notice because there were no, no, no Asian kids. So even though I, I don't think I looked that Asian, 
objectively, but they picked me out very quickly. And so I could hear a little gang saying, Ching Chong, Chinaman, or, or little things like that, you know, Jap, hey, there's a Jap. And, um, and I just, I had been taught by my, my father, who was Irish, to box. So I had a certain, he wanted me to, to learn how to box because he said, this will give you self-confidence. And so if anybody picks a fight with you, you'll be ready and you'll, you'll be able to, you know, look them in the eye and say, yeah, come on, baby, you know, <laughs> you're going to get hurt too. <laughs> you know, I might go down, but you're going to get hurt. And so I was, uh, I had some self-confidence at least to resist that, but I, um, it really was, you know, hurt, hurtful and it really was wearing me down. And so I, um. But I kept up this bold front, and uh, and then when they came to visit at the halfway point, I think one week, and uh, my dad said, "How you doing?" And I said, "Oh, it's great, oh, you know, great, great camp." <laughs> and then I uh, I just couldn't hold it anymore. I started crying. It was like the first time I think I'd ever cried, uh, and certainly in front of my dad, you know, who was a big, tough Irishman. He was a manual laborer. So he had these huge hands and very tough and uh, macho guy and. Uh, so I didn't want to cry in front of him, but I, I couldn't help it. So I cried, and he said, uh, and I remember he he held me, and he said, that, oh, that's okay, you know. And he just held me for a while, and he said, okay, you can come home. You can come home with us. You don't have to stay here. And as soon as he said that, I, don't, um, I had this, something just welled up inside of me, and I said, you know, I couldn't. There's no way I was going to go home. There was absolutely no way I could go home. I had to stay there, and I had to face up to the situation. I had to. Uh, I couldn't run away. And I, um, I think what happened, you know, when I look back now and I studied psychology and everything, I think that it was um, just that simple acceptance of the of the vulnerability of the small of the child who uh, he may have, you know, wanted me to be tougher, but I wasn't, and. Um, just accepting me as I was was um, just something uh, happened inside of me, and I felt this the courage, you know, to stay and to face it and to fight and whatever whatever would happen, I was willing to do that because of that uh, just that simple acceptance of my weakness, um, and I think that's what so many of us are are hoping for, wishing for, you know that. It may be from somebody else, but it may be just we have to do it ourselves too, and be able to to look at ourselves and see what the ways in which we fall short, the ways in which we feel weak, the ways in which we're not you know, imperfect, and uh, that if we can accept those, that it's the source of of courage and uh, new energy, and that's I think something that differed a lot in my when I started formally studying psychology that the kinds of therapy I was learning in uh, in the U.S. was very different from an indigenous form of therapy in Japan, uh, which is uh, very much based in acceptance. So there's a, I don't know if some of you have studied it, certain Saward has studied it a lot, but the Amorita therapy, which comes, uh, has, Amorita was a psychiatrist at the time of Freud, uh, but he came up with a, a therapy that was based in acceptance and telling Patients like don't try to change yourself. Just accept, accept who you are. Accept that these are symptoms that you have, and just this is all part of you. Uh, it's not, nothing to deny or n- n- get rid of. It's something you you need to accept that this is who you are, and that that was the therapy. The therapy had this uh, the sense of acceptance. You know, that if you can accept who you are, then paradoxically, you can change. 
and that from that acceptance comes the loss of the self-criticism and instead you you are able to get this new energy to say okay this is who i am but what else am i and what else can i be and so that um i think it's also that has that that therapy has that sense of uh we don't have to always try to change through our will power right and through will and that even that can have this sense of separation of mind and body well geez our mind let us down again it didn't it didn't uh, control our bodies and we didn't do what we wanted to do and instead the mordita has a very holistic sense of that the mind and the body are going together and we can if you can accept then you can also change and it's not one or the other and um, so that felt very uh, fitting to me when i was studying and it come from a study of chinese medicine which of course had a very similar kind of holistic sense that was very different from the psychotherapy that i was studying in the West. Um, you know, this idea of accepting yourself uh, and uh, accepting all the different parts of yourself, at least here in the in this uh, Bay Area, California bubble, at least, it's sort of a, a popular and accepted idea in some way. And yet it's so incredibly hard, right? And sometimes there can be that split for people and like, yes, I know. And I really want to accept that. Uh, and yet, uh, there's something so vivid in how you're describing that moment of surrender of uh, not trying to uh, be in the way of the of the vulnerability, the weakness in that moment, right, crying on your father's uh, father's chest, that something more kind of needs to happen than this idea of Uh, yes, I do accept in my head. It needs a, um, I don't know if it's a cathartic, it's a, it's a hard process, if we want to frame it that way, as much as a, as a mental process. The way I understand that, the way I understand you, you saying that. And one thing that uh, struck me, there were a number of examples in your, in your book in terms of Japanese concepts in the language of around accepting things the way they are and the opening for change that comes through that. Uh, the the saying yes to how life is, the saying yes to how you are, um, accepting it, embracing it, beautifying it in, in some way uh, that has an incredible depth. And I don't know if it's easier in, in the cultural context in Japan or if people struggle with that there too, but maybe you can highlight for, uh, for the folks here a little bit more on what embracing and accepting uh, the suffering and the dilemma, what that means for you and what it means in the sort of in the cultural and linguistic uh, sense. Well, the, the story that comes to mind was I, I was living with my grandmother in the western part of Japan and just the two of us, and I was going off to um, school. I, so I got into a school in, in Tokyo, and I was going to leave her, and she was going to be alone. And I, and I remember feeling like we're eating our last meal together, and I'm thinking, oh, poor poor grandma, she's going to be all alone. You know, She's going to really miss me. And I um, and for some reason, I said the word. So the word is sabishi, obachan, sabishi desho. You're going to be really lonely without me, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, and she said, no. <laughs> no, I'll be fine. And I thought, oh, come on, you're just pretending, right? Uh, and she said, no, Nihonjin wa ne, sabishi wa ski desu yo. So, you know, she always, so she always treated me like the American, because I grew up in the U.S., so it was always, you're the American, you don't understand Japanese culture and the way Japanese people think. But, you know, Japanese people like sabishi. And sabishi, in English, you would translate it as lonely. 
So to me, it was always a negative word, like, oh, it means you're all alone. And she said, no, sabishitu, Japanese means that you've had something rich. You've had something, you know. And so it's, sabiru also means to rust. So you, there's been something of value this, that you've had. And therefore, when it leaves, you're not empty. You still have that. And it's a, you can keep reminding yourself that you've, you've had this richness in your life. So in that case, it was, you know, she had... Our, our, the love between us, and that would never go away. Even if I went to, off to Tokyo to the big city, she, I would still be with her in the countryside. And of course, she would feel something, uh, the missing and at times, my physical presence, but that would also remind her of that she had the love for me. And so it was a, uh, very striking to me culturally, you know, that the way I was seeing it in a, what I think a much more American perspective and the way she was seeing it and that, um, I felt as I knew her more that that was something that was really part of her culturally, you know, as Japanese, much more than it was for me. That that sense that of embracing that loneliness and certainly the, you know, the cherry blossoms. You know, some of you have been in Japan, but it's it's like national news. You know, from from March and April, where are the cherry blossoms now as they move up from the south to the north and. This day is going to be a full bloom, and you've, everybody, make sure you go outside and see the cherry blossoms. And um, you know the way in which it's talked about is just unbelievable, com, you know, compared to what you might imagine. Talk about flowers in this country, and um, but that the cherry blossom is such a you know an endearing symbol of this uh, impermanence. You know, the sense of um, that it uh, everything is living and dying, and everything will. The most beautiful things in life will be here just a short time, and that you have to appreciate that and also be able to let it go, and so not to not be afraid to appreciate it and say, "I love the cherry blossoms," knowing that within a few days they'll be gone. Uh, and that was something that I think was also having grown up in the U.S. It was not something that was felt natural to either. To it felt like, "Wow, this is pretty amazing." To to think of this sense of impermanence as embracing that impermanence so deeply and making it part of um, part of your you know every culture and that was something that even your your seasons revolved around that sense and that you hear people still older people and people who are getting uh, towards the even ending life stages talking about if I see in terms of the cherry blossoms you know can I see the cherry blossoms one more time and that um, so that's called, there's a, a term, mono no aware, and it's, uh, I think it expresses that sense of uh, that things are, are only here for a short time, we're only here for a short time, and if we can embrace that, then that makes our life richer rather than running from it or denying it or feeling that it's too scary to think about that things are ending even as they're beginning. So one of the things that I hear this uh maybe less of a separation between what you have and what you don't have, right? That the love can, the whether it's the love of that which is present or whether it's the love for that you long for, it's a similar kind of frequency. It's a similar, uh, maybe it's the same frequency, maybe it's the same feeling and having less of a dichotomy of, oh, now I don't have it, I shall be depressed and suffering uh, and now I do have it I, sh I shall be happy but it's sort of a returning or a turning towards the source more the mm -hmm. way I, I hear that yeah. yeah I think so yeah that, uh, 
I, 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 I like Facebook, even though I'm somewhat addicted to it now, but I, I posted on Facebook the other night this, uh, a photograph of me and my two dogs. And my two dogs both passed away suddenly about a year ago. And um, I, I wrote a poem that I, I dreamt that I died, and I uh, lost at sea, washed ashore, and, uh, and there were my, I can't forget the poem, but there, were my, there they were waiting for me to come home to them. And I realized that we had never been apart, or a little more poetic than that. But the idea was, you know, that I, I died and I came, came to heaven, and there they, the dogs were there. And, but I also realized that they never, we'd never been separated, but it was just in my mind that we had separated, and that as long as I, they were actually always part of me because I still love them, so they're always there. And mm-hmm. but it was the illusions created by the limitations of my mind that have created this sense of suffering because we're we're apart. Mm-hmm. But actually, if I can really be present, then I f- know that they're we're not apart. Mm-hmm. So. The theme of impermanence, the theme of death is is part of that, right? The turning towards yeah. that too, and in some way embracing it uh, almost, which again might be a somewhat of a heady uh, idea at first, but there is something profound about uh, looking at the impermanence and looking at our own eventual dying and not being here and everything and every one we love um, and that not turning into a dark depressed place but turning towards what matters towards the love the beauty uh, the purpose in in being here now uh, that you speak quite a bit and if you want to if want to open that up a little bit well yeah yeah That was um, one of my grandmother's favorite stories because so she actually grew up with my great-grandfather who was a they call Hatamoto, which was, means you're a direct a shog, uh, a samurai who works directly for the shogun. So the, and so he was uh, one of. Uh, uh, but by the time she knew him, he was not. There were the samurai had been. A, um, the, the whole class system had been abolished, so he was not a samurai anymore. But she grew up with this man who then, when she could get him to tell stories, he told one story was that he said, "This is the, I. W- I start every day by contemplating death." And that helps me to come alive. Right? And that uh, she told me that, and it was a way of. Uh, and I remember when I heard it when I was younger, it, I didn't really, you know, I couldn't understand it. And I thought, wow, that's really depressing. <laughs> What a way to begin the day, you know, <laughs> to think about dying. And uh, but I thought I'd try it, so <laughs> I tried it, uh, you know, kind of a, a meditative approach, you know, contemplating death. Wow. And. Um, uh, You know, I, I felt like I, I could understand it once I experienced it, that sense that if you can go to that place of really remembering, you know, that you're a living, dying being, then it can, rather than frightening you, it can awaken you, you know, to this sense, wow, okay, I really am awake right now. I'm really here. And if I'm here, what can I do? Um, and so to me, it, it brought that very uh, different sense about starting the day with a, uh, rather than kind of like busy, 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 it was like, well, wow, if I'm really awake, what would I do if I was really awake? And of course, we're never really awake for very long, but if we can be mindful, uh, you know, throughout the day, then we can keep returning to that place anyway, and uh, at least for glimpses and moments, say, okay, I'm awake right now, now what's really important, what can I do? And Um. 
all the themes that we've been touching on so far with, you know, whether it's accepting oneself, uh, one's vulnerable parts, uh, finding, remembering who you are and those types of themes, it might still sound a little, um, you know, self-centered, uh, possibly indulgent uh, in some way. And your book is far from that, right? That uh, all of these uh, the the healing and the connecting with oneself on a deeper level for you is always connected to community to uh, to others and uh, a great source in your own life you know i know that in my own life as well uh, the touching uh, in with one's heart and vulnerability and suffering is as a connector as a connecting point to others who are uh, suffering who are victimized or marginalized in in some way or another so a lot of your work is uh, in uh, helping communities uh, tapping into that together to to come together and uh, tell us a little bit about your work as far as uh, diversity and inclusion goes uh, and I think you've also worked with with the military quite a, quite a bit and I wonder where these how these topics are landing in in contexts uh, yeah. like that if you talk to uh, a bunch yeah. of Marines about <laughs> vulnerability uh, yeah, they're yeah. real soft, those yeah. guys. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so I'll go back a little bit to um, the early 80s. I was about, I wanted to go, I was in Japan, I was studying acupuncture, and my teacher was blind, and he um, he drank a lot of sake, and I, uh, he gave me free acupuncture lessons if I drank sake with him at night, so I, I ended up drinking a lot more sake than I had wanted to, but I got free lessons out of it. And But he uh, would, sometimes when he got drunk, he got very angry, and he started swearing at me one night. He said, you're such a stupid fool. Why don't you realize you're not blind, so you've got to get the most, study the most you can, and get the, you have to get an MD degree, because an MD has power and size. So, okay, so I came back to the U.S. and I was about to, um, I took all the, the pre-med courses and I was going about to go to medical school and I, and I realized that it was just so fortunate to realize that I really didn't see the world at all in that way, in that very reductionistic scientific way that you needed to, to really study that um, medicine in, the, in a medical school and then to practice in the, um, that form of medicine. And so I, I stopped... Um, I decided not to go, and then I was deciding whether to come here or the, I get into Harvard. And I here, CIS. Here, CIS. Yeah, mm -hmm. he chose Harvard. How yeah. come? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <well laughs> one reason was because I wanted to work in Japan, and people in Japan recognized Harvard, but they didn't know CIS. So I thought, and I uh, I thought CIS had a better program, but I f was able to find people at Harvard who were also good. And one of them was Richard Katz, who had studied with in Timothy Leary's lab and was with Ramdas, and and then that had you know blown his mind enough where he went off to Africa and studied with healers in the Kalahari Desert, and the, then went to the Fiji Islands, and has spent the past two year, twenty years in Canada studying with First Nations healers, and so he was my advisor. So I had a good start in uh, in understanding that clinical psychology was a very limited field. And so when it, by the time I came to San Francisco to do what was called a clinical community psychology internship, and I was at uh, San Francisco General Hospital in the Asian Psychiatric Inpatient Unit and at the Richmond Area Multi-Services. They still have that? Does that still exist? There I am. And uh, they had, it was called the National Asian American Psychology Training Center. 
uh, but it was called clinical and community, which meant that they recognized that clinical in the sense of one-to-one psychotherapy was a very limited thing to do in terms of serving a community, and therefore you had to do something in the community. So I, I was doing things in uh, for the Japanese-American community at the time. And uh, one thing I got out of it was I met my wife, who is still my wife, and that was through that uh, doing community work because you had to deal with uh, she was a newspaper reporter, and so I got one benefit out of doing that internship here. But otherwise, I, I started to get um, turned off somewhat to psychotherapy and that sense of the individual sense of what psychotherapy was and the difficulty of transferring that into a doing something for a whole community of people. Um, I, I still ended up practicing it for about 20 years, but um, I think it was a growing uh, feeling of dissatisfaction that and from what I wanted to do in terms of influencing communities uh, it would be easier if it was done in groups and so um, since uh, in about the past eight years or so I've done almost all my work is in groups and it's done uh, with the sense that if you can bring people into that uh, consciousness presence the mindful state that it creates um, and they're in a group, it's much easier to have them to realize that connection that the paradox of going inward also can can bring you outward. Right? It can make that awareness when you open your eyes after you've been meditating or after you've been mind, done a mindful exercise, your eyes have a clarity that they didn't have before you went inward. And so if you have the people right there in that room, in the group, and you're all going to that same place of vulnerability and you feel you can be more authentic, then that connection just becomes much more possible or it becomes possible right in that moment rather than encouraging your client to go out, you know, out, okay, now we've done something here together, now go out, go out there in the world and see what you can do out there in terms of connecting to others. And so that's been my way of working is I found it more effective to go from that sense of individual focus on uh, your own self-development and well-being to that that brings a compassion that naturally comes out right it can go outward that if you really can engage with self-compassion that it's something that you just understand intuitively that it, it's something that you can bring to other people and so that's that's the title of the book is really about that sense that what has become known as mindfulness not that mindfulness really has that initial meaning, but that what's become perverted in a sense by, uh, especially around here, that it has become very, uh, a more limited meaning. Uh, and it has, you know, e but even, you know, f even some of the, the most well-intentioned people like John Kabat-Zinn have taken it out of its spiritual religious context, medicalized it, and made it into something that can be seen as an individual stress reduction. And BSR doesn't really emphasize the, the relations between people in those groups. Uh, and so mindfulness does have a recent history of becoming an individually focused thing. And so the, the emphasis on the word heartfulness is really just to you know, bring it to this sense of, this by itself in Japanese is a word kokoro, which means a more holistic sense about who who we are as human beings, rather than this kind of mind-body separation, um, and so the, using the word heartfulness, you know, is oh, my hope is that it, it reminds us, it helps us to remember that a deeper focus for the purpose of can be for uh, 
being mindful and being present, that that can have a much deeper meaning than simply for our own individual well-being. One of the things that you're saying in your definition of uh, heartfulness, that these components uh, that you're that you're mentioning, that compassion, but also responsibility, is a big factor in there, and the the obligation. Once you are in tune and maybe have enough self-compassion and know your wounds and soft spots uh, enough to be empathetic and compassionate to others that there is this call of a call for action and for activism in some way and uh, that i think there was maybe this probably all goes back to your grandmother uh, as well this idea of obligation with love that that is possible of not responsibility in the sense of oh i have to do this thing that i don't really want to do but seeing what needs to be done and filling it with, with heart in some way. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, there was always a sense from, from her and from people around, she was like the heart of the family. And people were very clear that like when she died, and um, many of you haven't read the book, but she died 111. And the, by the Buddhist way of counting, she was 113. So all the Buddhist things say she was 113 and, you know, And uh, she was really healthy until about 110, and then she kind of went downhill. But it, was a, it wasn't very long that she went downhill. But she, at the funeral, everybody was saying, oh, what a you know, big heart she has. She was such a heartful person and, in Japanese. But it, it all felt like it was about heart, and it wasn't about her mind. But her mind was also something that you know, she really cherished. So she cherished both the, uh, the way we could actually use our cognitive rational thought processes, analytical processes, but also that there was something beyond that, and that was something we had to value even more than that. Um, but that was uh, you know, something that all of us know is not part of our formal education system, to emphasize that there's a heartful part that is where we have knowledge and where we have the fine meaning and purpose in, in living, and that that is, is not something that we teach our children in, uh, formally in schools, and it's not something that is uh, the reason that people get advanced academically and the people why here people, they do. Oh, I should have come here. <laughs> We talk about this stuff all the time. Oh well, this is uh, this is a good place then. Um, you know, they certainly weren't in the the schools that my sons went to and in Tokyo or in here, the schools I went to, and it wasn't, uh, it was only certain professors at a place like Harvard that talk about it, and they were certain, they got rid of them as soon as they came up for tenure. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, this is a, uh, from what I know, is, is a special place, and that's, uh, but otherwise it's very rare to say that it's what happens in the heart is important, and at Stanford it's not, it's very relegated to what is uh, considered to be real, you know, academic Uh, content and it's um, so it's been a, a real fight at Stanford to try to in, integrate this into a curriculum and to say that this is should can be part of any any subject and should be part of any subject you know to certainly to consider the ethical components of what we're doing in any field uh, is especially necessary now that we live in this Facebook culture in which we have very young people uh, saying they're smarter than any older people and saying we have to move fast and break things. And, um, you know, I think there's a pause now, people saying, well, I think you've broken quite a few things right now, and that maybe some beyond repair. And 
uh, hopefully you're learning something from this, but we've got to slow down and fix things now, now that you've broken so many things. And, um, and I think so. I think there's a time. It's a time now that there's much more receptivity to um, looking at the, the the negative sides of what we've done by going so fast and by by uh, putting so much value on achievement and and uh, technology and what that can do for us. And so they had a recent you know, conference in San Francisco, the Wisdom 2.0 conference, which happens every year. Has anyone been to that? You know, the Wisdom 2.0. It's this, you know, strange mixture of um, mindfulness, contemplative people with the corporate world. And um, I was very cynical about it for years, but now I've joined it. I've been the past two years, and it's part of, you know, kind of admitting who I really am in the sense <laughs> that, you know, I'm no, I'm no different in some sense that I'm trying to bring together different worlds, and um, and that there was there was a real uh, call at that conference for. Uh, un kind of slowing down and understanding. Look what we're what we've done and what we're doing here, especially in this valley, um, and the kinds of uh, ways, the values we've had. We've got to slow down and, and question them, and to rein in technology and use technology for a greater good, rather than um, the kinds of destructive forces it can have. And that, and the way we can do that is to really value what we have seen as marginal voices within the whole uh, picture about what is advancement and what is, what is um, civilization and technology. And so I found there was a receptivity that I'd never uh, encountered before in this, what you can see as kind of a mainstream mindfulness movement uh, to realize that something has really been missing by this sense of spiritual bypassing or by saying we're, you know, we've transcended those earthly concerns of race and gender and we're all beyond that and you know we don't need to deal with those little dirty things in life they're so complicated uh, let's just be up in our spiritual space and there was I felt a real questioning of that you know to bring in uh, issues that were really uh, we need to bring the power of something like contemplative practice into solving helping to solve those problems and there was a you know much more open to that, uh, so bringing people like Tarana Burke in, who started the Me Too movement, and bringing in a doctor who's working uh, in uh, with uh, trauma and abuse, and so people working with very severe uh, social issues and issues of social justice, uh, bringing them in as mainstream voices about what this whole, the possibilities of what contemplative practice can bring to social justice. Uh, I'm glad you're, you're pointing that out. We sort of started out uh, with a bit of the um, maybe the negative side of the uh, entering of mindfulness and things like gratitude into into the mainstream uh, that can be uh, watering down uh, sometimes even abusive form in some way to help people deal with otherwise intolerable situations. So it has that dark side or that uh, uh, downside in some ways, but yet uh, on the other side, there is openness. It is part of the mainstream dialogue, the embrace of neuroscience, uh, interest in, in mindfulness and things like gratitude, all the positive psychology research that makes it available for the sort of maybe more 
uh, mind uh, scientific reductionist uh, thinking world out there uh, and yet culturals, uh, culturally across the world uh, these things have been encouraged for a very long time and then here they, here they are and there is a receptivity of, towards them yeah. uh, gratitude is another mm -hmm. piece that you talk uh, that you dedicate some time to as far as Uh, embracing self and other and being with being with what is as a as an important as an important part of the of the heartful path yeah, yeah. one thing about gratitude that i guess in, con in coming from what we just talked about was this you know the dangers too of telling people to be grateful and that how um, you know i've i've have heard real pushback against that and, 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 you know, anger, too, and to say that that's, you know, it's easy for you to say to be grateful and that, uh, but when there's injustice, you know, why should I be grateful? Am I supposed to be grateful for when something unjust is happening? And uh, it's, for me, the, I teach a course called uh, Transforming Self and Systems, and one of the things that's really come up for a number of the students who have marginalized identities is that you know the real anger and rage and that about the injustice that they feel much more strongly than a lot of other people in society and so they struggle a lot with you know my beautiful messages about be grateful and be let's be happy and that being happy and grateful is it's a matter of the mind and you know you can make yourself happy and you can be grateful and uh, it's up to you and You know, to me, that's a it's a very dangerous me message too, because it can be used by systems, right? And it can be used by people with power to subjugate, to keep people in their places, to keep them, you know, looking, waiting for the kingdom of heaven, where they finally get their reward, and to just be passive and accept what we what we give you. Um, and so, when when I teach the courses, I have to really be careful about bringing that aspect in, that there is, uh, you know, rage can be justified and anger can be justified and anger can be productive, you know, if you can channel it into productive paths uh, and you can harness it and um, and it is something that can keep us alive because we, uh, it can fuel us to really do something and see the, our purpose in life. A lot of my students find purpose in you know, really embracing that. Uh, anger and rage and trying to make it into something that uh, serves rather than serves a good rather than is destructive and um, so gratefulness to me is, is a very mixed message and sometimes I show like be these beautiful films that the uh, David Steindl mm -hmm. Rast mm -hmm. has made mm -hmm. and I used to just show them and uh, I didn't I didn't kind of allow any critical analysis of them but I I've looked at them a little uh, more carefully lately and so I show them now and I say well what's going on inside you all and some people you know like <clears throat> some people go oh they're so beautiful I love those and other people are going well you know who's he talking to or you know they have a more critical analysis of the things that are in a video like that and uh And I, so I find that discussion is really helpful and informative to thinking about how do we bring all of this into um, something that works not just for certain people uh, in society. And I think the mindful movement has really been seen as you know a very mainstream 
world uh, movement for privilege of certain people, certain kinds of privilege, and how do we bring that the power of of that movement uh, to work for more people and to work for uh, solving and working towards the solving of of really deep social problems without uh, without shutting down the suffering and the anger uh, that might be connected to that to that suffering. Um, one thing that I often think about, you know, as a therapist, as a human, uh, is this question of, and you have some beautiful anecdotes in your book about how some people in the face of tremendous suffering, dying, right, uh, can can turn towards acceptance, gratitude for the little tiny, tiny things. And at the same time, it's incredibly hard and it can't be prescribed. It can certainly not be coerced uh, in, in, some, in some way. What's your sense of that? Is that, is it intentionality, the sort of Viktor Frankl, we can always choose our attitude no matter the circumstances uh, type of message? Is there uh, uh, inner predisposition um, what what's your what's your sense of working with people who in your time in hospice and you know having cooked these topics for a long time yeah. where do people draw that from are some of us just lucky to be to be grateful in that way under real duress and under real distress yeah I think I was drawn to hospice work because I really wanted to know that and um, I find it both sad and Uh, happy in a way. That, uh, in other words, I find it sad that you hear so many people say that. Why did it take this to, for me to realize? You know, why did it take? Why did I have to be so close to dying to, before I woke up and I could really see what's what's important and meaningful? That, and there's there's a, a sadness right to the awakening at such a late moment in life. Um, but it also it has felt hopeful in that the way that. People have said it too. It is, um, especially if they are getting closer and closer. You can feel that they're getting close to the gate in the sense that, and then it feels like they don't they don't care anymore about the fact that it took so long. All they care about is that they're nearing that state and that they feel good. That it's they. Oh, at least I finally, I finally understand. And oh God, it took so long. And. Um, And working with people who have severe illnesses, you know, you, you feel that same sense of they often will say something so directly, like God, why did it take, why did it takes this kind of a, an illness, you know, for me to realize, you know, how valuable my life is and how, you know, to, I've neglected my body so much and it took this illness before me to realize it. And, um, you know, to me, that's that's our human predicament in a sense that. It does, uh, unfortunately, take us so long, and we have to be confronted with something so dramatic before we open our eyes. And I think that's why I'm drawn to the education part, and even with young people, is to try to teach mindfulness and meditation and contemplative practice is just one way of helping them to be more the possibility of being awake earlier in life. And to have them, the earliest I work now is with high school students, but uh, they're, you know, they respond so amazingly to just the, telling them these kinds of messages. And when they can have those, just those moments when they feel like, oh, they, they're just seeing things with a clarity they never saw before and how different life looks and how different they 
feel about what they want to do with their life. And um, so that's been my my feeling now is um, if we can bring that understanding that you can get from end of life, facing the end of life and facing severe illnesses, if you can find practices that can help people to see, to glimpse that reality, to be awake earlier in life, then we create the possibil- more possibilities of having uh, people live good lives. You know, I just want to sort of underline one more time your call for um, looking beyond whatever that divide seems to be. Again and again, looking within where we're falling into the trap of creating another other, right? That is that is different, that is distant uh, from ourselves, that is the racist, the Brexit, the uh, uh, right, the unconscious uh, person, uh, and it's such a slippery road, uh, and we continue to have to catch ourselves from from doing that, uh, whether we work there and or decide not to. Uh, but there is something about that dualistic dilemma of self and other that it just comes in ever changing shapes unless we wake up to it. I think if I, you know, if I'm bold enough to feel the sense of mission that it's trying to bring what I feel like I've learned from contemplative practice to um, to not keep it contained, you know, into the little world for just certain people, but that it has the power and the potential to really touch, you know, all human beings and all lives, and to, you know, it has that potential of really reaching out beyond what we feel we need for ourselves into um, you know, really engaging with the most desperate human struggles and that we can't keep it contained and we can't keep it, you know, it can't be just something that is for a few people who have the privilege of, of accessing it, uh, but it has to be applied to the most you know, basic human struggles and human problems and that um, even in a small way, like at the university now, we, we did a, a, a course in which we tried to bring together the student activists, the people who care about the suffering in the world and are, see that that's their whole lives, and then the people who would say, you know, I'm interested in meditation and mindfulness, and often without any sense about it has anything to do with social, social issues. And um, to bring those two groups of people together into one class and to say that you know, these, these things, they can come together. And that the activists need to learn self-care because you're all you're burning out. You know you're not gonna you're not gonna last. The, the anger is the flames are consuming you, and you're you, know, you can't even stop. You know to to feel your heart. You know you're too busy all the time. I've got to be out in the street, and, you've got, and you don't want to extinguish the anger either because you know that's what fuels you. So somehow you've got to contain it and channel it and. So we've brought contemplative healing practices to them, that group, and then to the people who said we're interested in meditation because it's good for stress reduction and well-being. That you know, we taught them. Well, you know, that's something that will, when you start to do it, you may. And if you're not going to do spiritual bypassing and say you've transcended these problems, and you actually will look inside and see that you know, just like psychotherapy, in which you you can pretend like you can just go beyond these social issues but if you really are engaging then you've got to all you can see that meditation and contemplative practice and mindfulness can help you to be more 
aware not just of what's going on in here but what's going on in the world and that that will that awareness being awake to that will make you more feeling like what they're calling the compassionate response right you feel you have to respond to it and that that's the way you will make meaning of your life and give give meaning to your life as well if you can extend that compassion that you feel towards other people in the world and especially those who you're finding the hardest to the most you're seeing is not similar to you you've been able to to have to dehumanize to some degree if you can extend that compassion there then you have will have used your meditation well Stephen thank you for being with us tonight Uh, thank you for your mission in the world thank you for birthing this book Um, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to have this conversation with you and thank you for being here thank you all for being here thank you You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.